Hi, this is Robert Cunningham, pastor of Preaching and Vision at Tate's Creek Presbyterian Church. We want to thank you for listening to this resource, and we hope and pray it will be a blessing to you. One quick word, though, before you listen. While we are honored to be a resource for you, we do want you to know that an online sermon is no substitute for congregational life. It's a good supplement, but what you need more than anything else is membership and involvement in a local church. If you are not a member of TCPC, I want you to know that listening to your pastor is far more valuable than listening to this. If you are a member of TCPC, I want you to know that joining us in worship on Sunday is far more valuable than listening online. So to everyone, we are encouraged that you have sought us out, but much more encouraging would be for you to seek out a local church community. That said, thanks for listening, and may God now bless you as you do. Characteristics of the book of Acts is that um, interspersed between what can only be described as remarkable uh, events are seemingly unremarkable events. Uh, this is different than the gospel narratives, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, if you're familiar with those. In the gospels, we are just given the highlights of Christ's life and ministry. But wouldn't it be interesting if we were let in on um, the details of the more mundane days and discussions from the life of Jesus? Wouldn't you love to get that behind-the-scenes look? What, what, do they, what do they do traveling um, on the road between village and village? What, what do they talk about on their regular mealtime dinners and so forth? Wouldn't that be fascinating to see? Well, one of the reasons I have grown to appreciate the more boring passages from the book of Acts is uh, because we do get let in on some of the more uh, mundane details of what's taking place in the story. And our passage this morning is one of those. Today's text is a bridge of sorts, filling in details that certainly need to be shared uh, to Uh, support the progression of the story and connect some pretty significant events, but they're not particularly dramatic as uh, the passages that we have been looking at. But it's within these ordinary details that we can actually discover quite a bit about the early church, what they were like, what was going on, and how we can learn from them. Our passage is the first time followers of Jesus are called Christians. I wonder if we Christians have the humility to learn from the first Christians. I'm not the guy who idolizes the early church as kind of this perfect ecclesial model that we should try to replicate. Not at all. A tenet of the Reformed faith is that we are an always reforming people, always growing, always learning, so forth. So we don't canonize the earliest developments as pure unto themselves. In fact, if you study the New Testament, you quickly realize that the early church was a pretty messy church, doctrinally and in their, their morality. It was, it was quite the mess. But there is something about going back to the original inception of the church and learning from our forefathers in the faith. So that's my goal for us this morning. 21st century Protestant, conservative Christians in America learning 
from the first Christians in the world. And what emerges from our passage are two lessons in particular that I think are crucial for us in our context and in our day. Two things we see on display here that I think we are desperate to learn and to practice. What we see in these common mundane details are Christians who are adaptable while also principled. Adaptable and yet principled. And that's the two things that I want us to learn from them this morning. Let's start at how adaptable the early church was. Verse 19. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. So, context. If you remember... Um, What happened is that a persecution at the hands of Saul, who's now the Apostle Paul, um, in Jerusalem took place in response to Stephen's death in chapter 7. And the church had to scatter um, all throughout the ancient world. They've made it all the way up to Antioch, which is in modern-day Turkey. But notice it says that as they scattered, they did continue to preach the gospel. They did, did continue to speak the word of God. But, and this is really important, it says here, they spoke the word to no one except Jews. Now, in light of the Jew-Gentile division uh, that we've been looking at, that tension that we've been looking at quite a bit the past couple weeks, um, you might be tempted to think of that as uh, a result of their prejudice. They're not going to talk to anybody but the Jews because they're prejudiced against the Gentiles. And no doubt that was part of it. But honestly... It was more so just the normal, predictable mission strategy of the church. You see, we have to appreciate that um, from the beginning in Pentecost to this point, this was viewed primarily as a Jewish reformation, meaning Jews um, by the thousands were believing that Jesus was the Messiah, the Jewish Messiah. And so the obvious strategy of these folks is to go to the Jews who themselves were waiting for the Messiah, who were looking toward for the Messiah, and tell them, we figured out who it is. Jesus of Nazareth. He is risen from the dead. He is the long-awaited Messiah. He is your Lord. And so they, were, they, they saw their mission as convincing Jews that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. That's essentially the book of Acts up until this point. Now... As for the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people and cultures, we do know that something strange is going on that Peter has witnessed, and that's what we've been talking about. And apparently in a new development, they are, Gentiles are allowed to join the movement that's taking place. But it's not as if the early church is going to radically redefine its strategy and mission to now prioritize the Gentiles. And even if they did want to, the Gentiles couldn't care less about the Jewish Messiah. They had their pagan religions, and and many weren't even aware of this minority Jewish religion. So culturally speaking, why would they even want to have that discussion, much less join the Jewish messianic movement? It just didn't make sense. But look what happens in verse 20. But there were some of them, men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. 
Now, Antioch was a major city in the empire, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, nearly exactly the size of Lexington, which um, back then would be an enormous city. Um, But there was only, at most, 25,000 Jews living in Antioch. So it was a heavily, it was heavily dominated by Gentiles and Gentile culture. It was very wealthy, very hedonistic, and actually very religious. It was a very religious city. Antioch was to Gentile polytheism what Jerusalem was to the Jewish monotheism. The, the, meaning the major Greek gods, the famous Greek gods that you, that you learn about in school, they all had temples in Antioch. They were all worshipped there through pagan rituals and so forth. Well, followers of Jesus, fleeing persecution, show up in Antioch. Not many Jews here in this city, so let's tell the Hellenists that Jesus is Lord. Why not? And out, that outside-the-box, unconventional decision leads to verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. Now, I promise you, they did not see that coming. Why would this, why would these wealthy, hedonistic, pagan-worshipping Hellenists forsake Greek culture to call upon the Jewish Messiah as their Lord, especially considering that to do so would be viewed as insurrection against Caesar, who told his people, I alone am your Lord. So if you start calling Jesus of Nazareth Lord, like these, like these early followers of Jesus are saying, you're going to get their persecution too. What is going on here? This doesn't make sense. The only explanation is the hand of the Lord's providence and power was upon the ministry in Antioch, which leads to verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So this is the hub of Christianity at this point. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad. Now, don't take the fact that he was glad for granted. He easily could have been dismayed. He easily could have been angry, discouraged. What are these Gentiles doing joining our faith? That's not what I expected, and that's certainly not what I wanted. But instead, he celebrates what God is clearly doing, even though it's not what he would have expected or what he would have done. And not only was Barnabas glad... We will find out in a moment that he goes to get the Apostle Paul, brings him to Antioch. And then what we will see is that the early church does a complete about face of vision and strategy. And because of Antioch, because of what God is doing in Antioch, literally the church's focus and identity is now toward the Gentile world. In fact, our passage ends with verse 26. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Here's why that was noted. Here's why that's important. What happened is that they now needed a new title, a new identity, something that was not so narrow as simply, we are Jews who believe Jesus is the Messiah. Now and henceforth, we are Christians. We are Christians. And so the point I'm making is that this is a massive 
historically monumental change in strategy and even their very identity. And they were willing to embrace that change because of what God was doing and for the sake of the gospel. Now, if there's anything that the conservative, Protestant, evangelical, reformed, Presbyterian church in America folks are known for, it would be our openness to change. That was a joke. There's like nervous laughter. They're like, am I supposed to laugh at that? Yes, you can laugh at that. We hate it. We hate change. We are slaves to our deeply entrenched traditions and preferences. But I think adaptability on the scale of what we see in our passage, quite frankly, a literal like what's God doing and how do we change to align ourselves with it is going to be demanded of us more than ever in the years that are upon us. If 2020 has taught us anything, and it's taught us a lot, hasn't it? It's that the church must become a nimble institution. When you exist in a majority Christian culture dominated by Christian assumptions, it's very comfortable, very prosperous, no pandemics, no social unrest, everything's good. In that context, it is very easy to become comfortable, even sedated. But a post-Christian world that is now questioning and even vilifying the Christian assumptions that it, it once held that is full of unrest, that's in the middle of a pandemic? Well, now it's church, adapt, or die. An exilic minority does not have the luxury of, we've always done it this way, so that must be the right way. I've shared this story before, because it's one of my favorites. Um, But let me share it again. I was newly... Uh, called as a senior minister here at TCPC at the ripe old age of 31. Um, now, when you call someone that young and that inexperienced, not surprisingly, and I, I, I think appropriately, there is a fear of too much change happening too quickly. And a precious um, older saint from our church, old enough to be my uh, grandmother, comes up to me in the early days of being senior pastor here. She pulls me aside. She says, Pastor, I just have one request. And I thought, here here it comes. You know, here it comes. She says, don't think about what I want. I want you to lead a church that my grandchildren will come to. Don't think about me. Think about them. And I just hugged her. Thank you. It was so unexpected. So refreshing. What's expected is, this is how we've always done things around here. I want you to keep doing things the way we've always done things around here. But that entrenched thinking has always proven deadly to churches. And there are thousands of empty churches in our culture bearing witness to that. Now, in the past, that entrenchment was a slow death. But what I'm suggesting is that considering what is upon us now, considering the stakes of what is upon us, an unwillingness to adapt, an unwillingness to change will prove to be a much quicker, I'm arguing, one generation away death. 
Brothers and sisters, now more than ever, we have to be willing to do what so many of us fear to do, and I include myself in this, we have to be willing to change. We have to be willing to adapt. But there's a huge qualifier to be made here, which leads me to the other lesson we can learn from these first Christians. Not only were they adaptable, they were principled. Continue on. And he, that is Barnabas, exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with a steadfast purpose, for he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. I was so struck by what Luke chooses to describe about this new church in Antioch. I was so struck by the details, and here's why. What happened in Antioch is amazing. I mean, the type of stuff that we pray about and dream about for our city, and it's happening. Revivals among the Gentiles, the gospel reaching a major city in the empire, disrupting pagan religious practices, and yet look at what is being noted and emphasized here. As radical as this development is, Barnabas's exhortation to the newly converted is nothing radical. Speaking candidly, it's refreshingly boring. He wants them to be faithful and steadfast. And speaking of Barnabas, this is our first introduction to him as a significant leader in the early church. He briefly showed up in Acts 4, but this is his first time we see him in authority and exercising leadership. And so, um, and, and as we move on from Acts, and even, even maybe more so in Paul's epistle, we will see how significant he is as a leader in the early church. And so what Luke is doing here is, um, is giving us, uh, because he's risen to such a prominent role, uh, Luke is rightfully uh, showing us his qualifications for the authority that he's being shown to have in this passage. And note the qualifications. Not his charisma, not his leadership ability, not his preaching, teaching, writing, and all the qualities that we tend to obsess over in church leadership. Luke says he's a good man full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Okay, and then Barnabas decides that what happened in Antioch is so significant that he needs to bring in the leadership of the great Apostle Paul. Now, the, the story has moved on down the road since we last left off with Paul. He's not no longer the newly converted Pharisee. He is now a leader, a lead apostle on the level of Peter himself. And so he wants to, there, it says... It says that there are even more being converted, and it has the feel of, of Barnabas saying, I can't keep up with this. I need some help. So I'm going to go pick, pick up Paul and bring him to Antioch. But notice what transpires. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. When he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Once again, refreshingly boring. This is not Paul coming in with the grand vision to ensure that they quickly capitalize on this amazing momentum that they're seeing and expand and grow and let's make sure we take this moving and then we see it explode even more. No, it would seem that their concern and priority is a healthy movement, not an explosive movement. They don't want the revival if it's not a healthy revival. Paul comes to town and he spends a year discipling them. That would be akin to us saying, hey, 
No, Tim Keller, won't you come be our speaker at the Good to Bluegrass Conference? And, you know, we'd love for you to give three talks on how to reach Lexington. And he says, you know, it's probably better for me to move there for a year and uh, get to know your people, get to know your community, uh, spend time with you, disciple you, leading, shepherding, loving. Make sure you're a healthy church before we talk about reaching Lexington. You see the point I'm making here? The primacy of a principled community is what we see in our passage. A healthy community, a morally faithful community, a theologically sound community, a steadfast and persevering community. These are the priorities, which happen to be some of the least prioritized attributes of churches in our culture. Now, why this is so important to note in light of my first point is this. You might have interpreted the need for um, adaptation, the need to adapt, the need to change. You might have interpreted that the way Americans tend to do so. There are countless leadership books out there that will tell businesses and institutions they must be ever-changing to meet the ever-changing culture around them. And that's right from a business perspective, where customers and money are the bottom-line priority. But what evangelicalism over the past few decades has done is mimicked those strategies. We have many churches that would say amen to my first point. That's the problem with the church. Too much tradition. Too many people saying this is how we've always done. They're unwilling to change. You've got to be able to change. You've got to be able to adapt. But what they've done is they've Americanized that commitment to change. We will reinvent the way we do church to mimic the cultural changes around us. So the extreme that I challenged in the first point is, we've always done it this way. We ain't changing mindset. That kills churches. That empties them. The extreme I'm challenging on this point is a completely reinvented way of doing church that mimics cultural strategies. And you know what that does? That fills churches. Produces a lot of results. So you get the charismatic leader who may not pass the character test he might have some narcissistic tendencies we'll look past that because boy can he lead and preach and then we'll water down the christian faith removing the offensive parts and make it palatable to our culture organizationally we will borrow from savvy business strategies that have proven successful and what do you know you've got yourself a huge church for ministry with a toxic culture sometimes abusive culture, with a shallow version of the Christian faith that cannot endure a pandemic or political and social unrest and the rapid secularization of society. So what if the adaptability I spoke of in point one is actually a recommitment to the principled vision that I'm sharing here in point two? What if the change needed is more character and less charisma? More planting of smaller churches and less building of megachurches. More discipleship. More discipline. More community. More dinner tables. More doctrine. More hospitality. More love of neighbor. More marriages and babies who we baptize and catechize in the faith. Who themselves confess Jesus and get married. And then we baptize their babies and catechize their babies. More 50-year visions 
of multiplying generational impact rather than giving in to the tyranny of immediate impact. More justice, more love for the poor. I think that's the adaption we need as we seek to navigate the ruins of our post-Christian society. So adaptable, yet principled. These are the marks of those who first called themselves Christians, and we modern Christians would do well to heed their admonishment. And by the way, it's an admonishment from Jesus himself. You know what we find in our Lord? The perfect balance of the sermon. I don't know if there's ever been a greater example of, the willing, of a willingness to adapt than the eternal Son of God taking on human flesh to fix a seemingly unfixable problem. I'd say that qualifies as adaptability. And yet at the same time, though he was clearly willing to be adaptable, he was steadfastly principled. Though in the flesh, he never sinned. Though part of culture, he was exceedingly counterculture. Though he sought to triumph, his triumph looked nothing like worldly triumph. Do you see? This is not just what we learn from the first Christians. This is what we learn from our Christ. And because of this, these are not good suggestions from the early church that we can take or leave. Some good consultation that you can do what you want with it. No, this is what is required of us as followers of Jesus. Adaptable, get principled. Chances are, one of those two resonated with you, and one of those two made you uncomfortable. The point I'm making is that we don't have a choice. We have to embrace both. This is who we are as Christians in this world, because this is who Christ himself was and is in this world. Let me pray for his help and guidance. So Jesus, make us this. We do confess individually, corporately, as, as this church, and then corporately <laughs> on behalf of the churches of America that we, we mess things up, we, we, we don't get it right, we have our failures. It's good to self-critique, Lord, but it's also good to never leave us there and to point us to the reminder that you love this church, messy as we are. You love us. You died for us. You purchased us as your bride. And so though, yes, we need to repent, may it be a repentance born out of grace. We love you, Jesus. We need your mercy. Would you send us forth, grounded in that gospel, and ready to repent? In Jesus' name.